you would please take your Bibles and turn in them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We return again to our series of sermons in Matthew's Gospel. We've been in a series within a series. Uh, now in the Sermon on the Mount, we come to the end of Matthew 5. The Sermon on the Mount spans Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We come this morning to the final verses of Matthew 5. I'd like us to read verses 38 through 48. If you've been with us in this series, uh, you may recall that I pointed out that in the latter half of Matthew 5, uh, the Lord, as He gives this teaching of His kingdom, uh, identifies six antitheses. Uh, you have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say unto you. Uh, we're coming this morning to the final two of those antitheses. They're contained in verses 38 through 48. Please follow along as I read. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's go to God in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we believe that your Son, the Lord Jesus, has come into the world as the way, the truth, and the life. We acknowledge him to be the way, the path upon which our feet may trod safely, the path of righteousness, the one who shows us how to live according to the will of God. We pray, Father, that we would love that path this morning, that we would delight in the way in which our Lord would lead us. We pray that what he has given us is his instructions for how we're to live before those who mistreat us and those who we might regard as enemies. We pray that it would appear lovely to us, that we would obey it. We pray that we would hate every wayward and false way. We pray that you would shut off to us crooked paths. We pray that we would walk according to your will, the will of our Savior. Help us in this, we pray. Come now in preaching. Minister to us by your word. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Two points this morning drawn very plainly right out of the passage. Point number one, Christ's will regarding how we respond to those who mistreat us. It's verses 38 through 42. Christ's will regarding how we respond to those who mistreat us. And then secondly, we'll consider Christ's will regarding our disposition toward our enemies in verses 43 through 48. Point number one, Christ's will regarding how we respond to those who mistreat us. Let me ask that we read again verses 38 through 42. Uh, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay, before considering those individual commandments that Jesus gives us with regard to how his disciples are to respond to wrongdoing that is done against them, uh, we need to observe something by way of context. What is the context 
uh, into which Jesus is speaking and giving his kingdom teaching. In particular, we need to understand something about that maxim, uh, that principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, This was a principle given to the Hebrews. It was common in Babylonian philosophy and culture, common later in Roman culture. It's sometimes referred to as lex talionis, the law of retribution or retaliation. That is equal penalties for equal crimes that are committed, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This was the biblical principle undergirding Mosaic civil or judicial case law in the Old Testament. In the nation of Israel, this was a principle to inform civil and judicial case law in the oversight and rule of God's people. It's referenced in passages like Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. A law might be given, and then the Lord would say, for it is said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The principle justified the law given. As a matter of context, we must recognize this principle had to do with how the government or the nation imposed penalties for crimes. This was one of the principles the magistrate, the state, the government was to use to inform the proper penalties uh, that should be applied to crimes that are committed. It was deliberately designed to curtail blood feuds between uh, various tribes and families to avoid the pursuit of vigilante justice and ever escalating violence against others. The way it would go is a member of one family would uh, maybe cut off the ear of someone in this family and they would respond by cutting off an arm and then they would respond by cutting off a head and you'd have ever escalating violence that's being done. Lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was a principle given exactly to curtail that kind of vigilante justice which at the end of the day is a form of injustice but rather it was to put in place a principle that would regulate the life of the people of God and would address such crimes. This law was to ensure that crimes were addressed by the magistrate with fair and corresponding penalties in order to achieve a certain standard of justice. Now, what we must appreciate, if we're to understand our Lord's words in Matthew 5, is that this principle, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was never meant to be applied in the individual realm, sort of our everyday lives, how we treat one another. You insult me, I'll insult you back. You hit me, I'll hit you back. It was never designed to be used in that way. It was a principle the state, the government, would use to develop civil and judicial order, but it was not to be used in the individual realm. Well, that is exactly, apparently, where the scribes and Pharisees were taking it. You and your individual relationships you know, we don't want you to, to, to go overboard with it, but an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's an acceptable ethic for you to live by in your individual life. Now, this context is important to appreciate if we're to properly understand Jesus' teaching here. Jesus is not giving instructions uh, on how the government or the state or the criminal courts are to operate. He's not speaking to the magistrate at all, nor is he taking issue with the fact that this principle might have been applied in that arena. The original command, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, had mainly to do with the penal code of the Jewish people, which was in every way appropriate and as it should be. But it was not to be the regulating ethic governing individual relationships. The magistrate is perfectly responsible to seek to impose this standard of justice in the legal arena, but that is not what Jesus is talking about in our passage. He's not speaking to how it's applied in the courts. He's speaking rather to our interpersonal relationships. Now, I think understanding this context immediately silences many of the diffuse questions people bring to this text that really have nothing to do with it. So people will come to this passage, they'll be somewhat troubled by it, and they will ask, is Jesus saying by this passage uh, that there should not be a death penalty? for murder, let's say? Or is he saying that we should all be pacifists? Or that it's wrong for Christians to serve in the military or in law enforcement or in the courts? Does this mean I shouldn't report crimes? Or should even allow myself to become the victim of crimes without pursuing any kind of justice? Does this mean I may never use self-defense when being threatened or harmed physically? Friends, I think those questions, though they may be legitimate questions to ask, rather miss the point of this passage. 
These are not the questions Jesus is setting out to answer in this passage. Much of the tension we may feel when approaching a text like this is resolved when we recognize the context Jesus is speaking to. Jesus is not talking about warfare, nor is he talking about the enforcement of the law in the civil life or the judicial sphere, or whether or not crime should be prosecuted in the courts. That may all be as it may be. No, Jesus is rather speaking to how some were applying this principle to ordinary interpersonal relationships. And Jesus' teaching then is that we as God's people, as his disciples, citizens of his kingdom, we are not to view this law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, as the regulating ethic in how we deal with the customary offenses, slights, insults, abuses, and mistreatments we may bear from others in our everyday lives. I just remind you again, as I have many times in this series, as we hear these commands from our Lord, don't run to the corners. Don't immediately find some corner case that you think disproves what Jesus is saying or means we've got to kind of overqualify what Jesus is saying. Stick with the main point, the main thrust. Listen to the context. What is he saying? What is he really speaking to? Don't fly to the corners and ask questions that Jesus' teaching was not given in this instance, at least, to answer. Jesus is not overturning the rule of law. He's not speaking out against the use of good government. He's talking about you and your Monday morning. He's talking about you and maybe your unbelieving family, Uh, you or your boss, you and your employees, Uh, you at the Christian university uh, or the secular university, Uh, you at the school, you out there in the world. How should you handle customary, everyday, garden variety, mistreatment, misuse, insults, offenses that come your way in this world. Jesus is speaking to the everyday slights and offenses and injustices we endure as a matter of living as Christ's followers in a sin-cursed world. And I should add, a world whose animating principle is opposition to the way of Jesus and opposition to those who follow in that way. So this is Jesus' burden, first of all, to communicate that if you think an eye for an eye is an acceptable ethic by which you're to live, you're wrong. Do not listen to the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus is telling us. Who would teach you that? My disciples, Jesus is saying, and the citizens of my kingdom, those who have been born again, those who have come under my rule, they are not to live in that way. Jesus says, verse 39, do not resist the evil person. Do not resist the evil person. In other words, do not set yourself against him. Uh, Do not become entrenched in a feud with him. Do not fight back against him. Do not set yourself against him. We are rather, according to Jesus in this passage, to allow ourselves to be insulted, to allow ourselves to be hurt, even oppressed or taken advantage of as servants of Christ. We as the Lord's servants, we as the Lord's disciples, citizens of his kingdom, do not demand justice and vindication for ourselves. We do not seek vengeance. We do not give in to the impulse toward retaliation. We as Jesus' disciples, rather in meekness and forbearance and self-control and compassion and spirit-wrought inner power, forego our own rights, accept reproach, endure slights and insults and injustices, because we as the Lord's people live by a higher law and are governed by a greater Lord. Again, Jesus is speaking to the heart here, as we've seen him do throughout this sermon. He's speaking to those who go around looking for vindication and perfect fairness in all of their relationships, those who think they have license to retaliate and to seek vengeance for wrongs and offenses committed against them. Jesus is speaking to those who are unwilling to cover offenses, to forbear with others, to be long-suffering, but instead are constantly insisting on their own rights, looking for their own vindication, around every corner, unwilling to suffer for righteousness' sake. Jesus says, it may not be so with my disciples. Well, what does Jesus then do? Like a good teacher, he illustrates his point. He gives practical examples of how this might work itself out. I think most of them are immediately relevant to us in our own day. Helpful to have some contextual data 
for the ancient world to understand them, but I think we could understand Jesus' meaning pretty quickly. Let's look at all four of them. Uh, First, verse 39, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. A slap on the right cheek would have been with the back of the hand, because if I'm slapping you like this with my right hand, if it's going to catch you on the right cheek, I do it with the back of my hand. And that was in those days, much as it is today, uh, one of the most egregious types of insults you could give a person. Because the goal of slapping someone on the cheek is not primarily to knock them out or to hurt them, it's to shame them, it's to humiliate them, it's to assault their dignity. You're slapping them in the face and you're with the back of your hand. It was an egregious insult. And apparently the ethic of the day was if someone hits you, you can hit them back. You know, don't go off and cut off his ear. But if they slap you in the face, you slap them right back. After all, hasn't the Lord said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Jesus says, no, my disciples won't behave that way. It will not be that way for my followers. Someone insults you, you don't respond in kind. You do not return evil for evil. You bear it graciously. You endure the humiliation. So you can slap me all you want. I won't respond in kind. I'm not going to slap you back. I'm not going to insult you as you've insulted me. I'm governed by a higher law than the law that governs you. I'm governed by a greater Lord than he that governs you. Of course, Jesus is not here imagining a vicious assault in which self-defense would be in every way appropriate. He has in view the typical kinds of insults his people will endure. And his law is this. We as the Lord's people must not retaliate. Brothers and sisters, I just encourage you to settle it, to resolve it. We will never repay evil for evil. We will never hit back. Uh, We will never retaliate in the way the world would want us to. We will not repay evil for evil. We will never seek vengeance, revenge. And friends, I say again, if you're going to live in this way, we've seen this in so many of the statements Jesus has made in the Sermon on the Mount, you must be ready to swim upstream culturally. The impulse to vengeance and to retaliation And to hit back when you've been hit is positively encouraged in our culture today. Uh, If you removed from wherever you stream your movies and shows, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, whatever, if you removed all the shows and movies that celebrate revenge, uh, you'd cut out probably half the material. Uh, You know, uh, The Princess Bride? My name is Indingo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. He says that several times throughout the film. And then at the end, what does he do? Six-fingered man, spoiler alert, he gets him. And we go, yeah, he got him. My name is Maximus Decidus Aurelius, husband to a murdered wife, father to a murdered son, and in this life or in the next, I will have my revenge. Gladiator, Russell Crowe. And then he gets him. And something rises within us that says, great, good. The bad guy got what was coming to him. The good guy hit back. I've been listening to a lot of Taylor Swift in my house lately. That's not by choice. There are at least three culprits that could be responsible for that. But if you listen to the lyrics, half of her songs are about getting the boyfriend back or getting the, you know, mean girl back. And, you know, she did this and I hit her back and she's great. Our culture magnifies celebrates. Typical garden variety every day, revenge, retaliation. Brothers and sisters, we can't be swept along in that. We don't respond in that way. The ethic that our Lord has given to us is that if someone slaps you on the right cheek, you turn the other to him also. You don't retaliate. Dads, I know it's common to encourage you to give this kind of instruction to your kids, but if you teach your kids if someone hits you, you hit them back, I don't know how you square that away with this passage. The proper thing is to say, I'm not going to hit you if you just hit me. You could tell on the kid who did that, that's fine, but you're not to respond in kind. There's no acceptable ethic whereby we can act in that way. I would encourage us, brothers and sisters, I think this comes at us in very subtle ways culturally. 
that we need to be ready for if we're going to live in accord with what Jesus is telling us here? I think there is a certain kind of person who has a certain kind of sort of hyper-fascination with the political arena, uh, which in the political world, this is the ethic. It's dog-eat-dog. It's an eye for an eye, it's a tooth for a tooth. Well, their party did this so we can do it. They went negative in their campaign ad so we can go negative in theirs, and we hit back. That's the law in Washington, D.C. The first justification you will get when something untoward is done is, well, they did it first. And here's how subtle this is. We will conclude, well, if we don't act in that way, we won't win the victories we want to win. Our guy or our girl won't get into office or we'll lose this cultural battle. See, we have to do that because there's a larger issue at stake here. As though the Lord depended on human means to accomplish his purposes. I just was teaching the children this morning, the fourth through sixth graders, we talked about the fall of Jericho. Rather than assaulting that city with ramparts and towers and bows and arrows, God's will was that they would march around it seven times. And I'm sure some were sitting there thinking, how will this be the means that God's will is accomplished? God is not dependent on human means and human instrumentation to accomplish his purposes. It is for us rather to do as our Lord has said. And his law is that we may never repay evil for evil. Verse 40, the second example given, says this, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And Jesus is envisioning a scenario in which there is the threat of a lawsuit. And Jesus says, rather than go to court, you settle the outcome by giving up your rights. Be willing to give more than you get. Be willing even to be defrauded. Paul will say that in 1 Corinthians 6. You think you have a claim to my tunic? Well, look, I'm not going to court with you. Look, just take my cloak with you also. Take what you want. You see, believers in Christ are to have this attitude. You may take my possessions from me, unjustly even, but I'm not going to cling to my stuff. If persecution or mistreatment or injustice comes my way, I'm not going to cling to my rights and militate against those who would misuse me. You want my tunic? Take my cloak also. If you take away all my earthly possessions, you have not taken away my treasure. My treasure is in heaven where neither you nor a million devils can touch it. Therefore, I am enabled, I am freed to endure your injustices. I am enabled to be misused. Even if you take what rightfully belongs to me, I'm not going to resist. In other words, I think the main point Jesus is getting across is that Christians should not have Velcro attached to their hands. They're not ruled by their possessions. They let their stuff go even when and if it is unjustly taken. The third example Jesus gives is in verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Okay, so ancient context is helpful here. The scenario here envisions the situation many of the Jews actually found themselves in under Roman occupation. The Roman soldiers had the right uh, to enlist uh, the service of a civilian for forced labor at any time. If you were a Jew in the Roman Empire, they could snap your fingers and say, pick that up and take it over there. Hey, we we need to move. Our militia is getting moved over to this neighboring town. Let's gather some Jews together. You're going to take the heavy backpacks and all this stuff, and you're going to carry them over there for us. It was legalized oppression a legal form of slavery and injustice. And how does Jesus say those who are the Lord's people, citizens of his kingdom, should respond? He says very clearly that you're to bear it. And more than that, even volunteer to do more. If he says, take this stuff a mile, you Jew, would it be helpful if I brought it two miles, sir? How do you respond to injustices that perhaps are opposed upon you by the government itself? The authority, the magistrate, the state, as an unjust law, an unjust requirement, is oppressing you. How do you respond? Jesus says you're to obey them. You're to endure it. 
You're to submit to mistreatment. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great London preacher, says this, there are thousands of Christian people who are in this position today in occupied countries, and we know not what may be coming to us. This is the middle of the 20th century. It may be that we shall be subjected ourselves someday to a tyrannous power which we naturally hate and which will compel us to do things we dislike. This is the way in which you are to behave in such circumstances, says Christ. You do not stand up for your rights. You do not show the bitterness of the natural man. You have another spirit. We must get into that spiritual state and condition in which we are invulnerable to these attacks which come upon us in different ways. What is Lloyd-Jones saying? You find yourself under a tyrannous power. Insofar as you can, without breaking the law of Christ, you submit to them. You give up your rights. And Lloyd-Jones, if you know, was hardly a softy. Hardly a weakling. This is the ethic that Paul calls slaves to pursue with reference to their masters. He's not justifying slavery. He says, you find yourself in this system, submit, be kind, don't retaliate, love your masters, honor them. This is the ethic Christ and the apostles called for among Christians in their relationship toward oppressive governments. All of the passages I'm familiar with in the New Testament that speak to the issue of how we're to respond to oppressive governments, there's three that immediately come to mind, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and Titus 3, each one emphasizes the exact same thing. Be subject to the ruling authorities. Submit to them. Now recognize that call, 1 Peter 2, is a call to submit to Nero. Do you think Nero might have oppressed the Israelite people in some ways? The Christian sect in some ways? I'm sure he did. But Peter says, no, 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 we we don't respond in kind. We don't call for revolution. We submit even to unjust laws. There are some, Christians even, who will argue that if there's an unjust law on the books, it's no law at all. And that we have the right as Christians to break laws that we regard as unjust. I don't know how you could possibly square that away with this passage. How you could possibly square that away with the teaching of the apostles. Here was an unjust law. The Romans enlist you in a kind of servitude. It's their right to do it. Be willing to submit to them. Don't respond in kind. No, but rather submit, endure the slight, endure the mistreatment, and go with him not only one mile, go with him two. Brother, sister, let's let the full weight of what Jesus is saying land upon us here, and let's not whittle it down or explain it away. Do not make the mistake of thinking you honor the kingdom of God if you are unwilling to submit to the very laws of that kingdom. Jesus is telling us that in our individual lives, we are to be willing to renounce our rights, to submit ourselves to mistreatment, and to be willing to be spitefully used by others. This is the Lord's royal law. If you want to show forth the power of the kingdom, you want to promote the cause of the kingdom, you want Jesus kingdom to come. Jesus says, give up your rights and be willing to submit yourself to mistreatment at the hands of others, like your Lord who goes before you. Why give up your rights in the face of mistreatment? Precisely because Jesus is Lord. Why be willing to endure mistreatment and not fight back? Because Jesus Christ is King of kings. Why should I be willing to be mistreated by the wicked or by oppressive governments for righteousness' sake? Precisely because the kingdom has come. And that's how citizens of the kingdom of heaven are called to live. Fourth and final example we're given in this passage is in verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Very straightforward and simple. Don't run to the corner cases now. The main thrust, stick with it. Jesus isn't saying you need to give money to feed someone's drug habit. The larger point is God's people should be generous. They shouldn't be tight-fisted. They shouldn't have super glue stuck to their hands. They're willing to let go of their stuff. They give their money. They don't shut their fists to others. Rather, Christ's people, his disciples, are benevolent, generous, kind, and compassionate. 
And this isn't just in theory, it becomes practical for them. They're willing to give up their money even to people who seem undeserving. They're generous with what they have. Friends, in all these things, what is Jesus doing? He's portraying a picture of a disciple who is not governed or dictated by his rights, his interests, his preferences, his possessions, his sense of his own deserts. But one rather who is freed from these things to lay them down in the face of insults, opposition, abuse, mistreatment, and persecution. And friends, I'll just remind you, as hopefully you well know if you've been a Christian for any length of time, this is not some obscure teaching in the Bible. It's not like, well, yeah, Jesus sometimes does really hard and weird things in the Gospels, and then the apostles, they kind of help us kind of straighten all that out. No, this is taught again and again and again throughout the New Testament. Now listen to how the Apostle Paul works this out in Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Then he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. That's the blueprint for faithful disciples. Don't, don't repay evil for evil. Overcome that evil with good. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, after calling Christians to submit to Nero, to honor the emperor and the governing authorities who were mistreating them, he says this in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Friends, that is power. That's the kingdom coming. You may read Matthew 5, 38 through 48, you may think, you know, that's loser theology. That's, that's doctrine for weaklings. How are we going to make any gains in the culture if this is the attitude we take? This is no way of winning a culture war. First of all, it often is. And secondly... Whoever gave you the notion that was the point? Where on earth did you get the idea that the Great Commission is that we would win a culture war, secular, pagan life today? Do you think that's what it looks like to see the kingdom come? Uh, friends, there were rulings this past week by the Supreme Court, some in particular on religious liberty, that I was quite encouraged by. The kingdom of God didn't advance an inch further as the result of those rulings. But I'll tell you where the kingdom of God is advancing. It's advancing in communist China, where there's no such thing as a culture war. It's illegal to have one. Where is the kingdom of God growing most brightly? Or is it making the greatest gains? Where are men and women being converted left, right, and center? to many of the occupied-type countries that Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about. As men and women bow the knee to Jesus, repent of their sins, put their faith and trust in Him, and join local embassies of the kingdom and local churches, and live in accordance with the Sermon on the Mount, where they don't retaliate. They don't fight back. They don't repay evil for evil. Rather, they live according to the law of the kingdom, and the kingdom, in their case, comes wherever God's laws are observed. Friends, I'm just aware there is a conservative Christian culture that, that, that will encourage you to militate and will make you think that the biggest wins are going to be in the realm of politics and culture. 
I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in the political process. I'm not saying we shouldn't seek to win the culture. Those would all be valuable things to do. But don't make the mistake of thinking that God's kingdom and God's power depends on social and cultural conditions that are favorable and auspicious. Well, you see, pastor, the, the kingdom will come if we can, you know, if we can get our hands on the mechanisms of government, and we, if we get the right people in office, that will create the conditions in which the kingdom will advance. Has that ever been true? Like, ever? In the Bible, in Christian history, the power of God will humble man, and Christ will build His church, and He will bring His kingdom in the face of all this world's opposition. All the things that will militate against this kingdom, it cannot be stopped. It will not be stopped. As long as men and women bow the knee to Jesus and follow Him and live according to these precepts, these ethics of the kingdom of heaven. Well, now let's move on to the second point, and I'll be more brief here. Secondly, let's consider verses 43 through 48, Christ's will regarding our disposition toward our enemies. If you would look again at verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. But if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, some may regard verses 43 through 48 as sort of a different way of stating the same point, but I think that would be a mistake. Certainly, the two sections are related. They're definitely related. There's a needle or a thread that's being needled through uh, both sections. But what I want us all to appreciate is that in verses 43 through 48, Jesus is actually escalating and enlarging the requirement. So now he's building on the foundations of verses 38 through 42 and saying, but there's more that you're called to than what I've told you in verses 38 through 42. He's moving beyond what he said in those verses, and he pushes the teaching further. Now the command is not merely don't hit back, but now the command is to positively love our enemies. He's not just saying don't retaliate. No, he says we're to love our enemies. Now the statement of verse 43 that Jesus quotes is not actually found in the Old Testament. The first part, of course, is that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's not a New Testament teaching. That's brought up a number of times in the Old Testament. But the second part of that quote was a faulty extrapolation or deduction made by the scribes and Pharisees. Sure, I'm to love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? You can't mean like our enemies. Uh, not the enemies of God, not my personal enemies. He could possibly mean I'm to love them. They don't qualify as my neighbor, be they Romans or Samaritans or what have you. He cannot mean that I'm to love them. No, no, I'm to love my neighbors, fellow Jews, but I may hate my enemy. Jesus says no. Well, then I'm to avoid my enemy. Jesus says no. Well, well then I'm to kind of grit my teeth, bite my lip, and just sort of tolerate him. Jesus says no. No, Jesus says you are to love your enemy. Now, in Matthew 22, parallel passages in the other Gospels, Jesus will raise this issue of loving our neighbors, which includes our enemies, to the highest possible level of importance. In other words, I think we can say the call to love our enemies is among the most important commandments in all the Bible. You know what Jesus says in Matthew 22? He's asked, what are the greatest of the commandments? And he says, well, there's two of them. 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And do you know what he then says? On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You want to honor the law of God and keep his law? Love your enemies. You want to be a citizen of the kingdom? Honor your Lord. Love your enemies. On these two commandments, love for God, love for neighbor, which includes our enemies, everything else hangs. Could hardly give greater priority to this call that we as the Lord's people are to love our enemies and pray for those who despitefully use us. And friends, when we read that word love, maybe there are some here who have already gone to work on that word to evacuate it of all of its meaning. Love my enemy. Well, that means I'm to do stuff for him. That's it. It means I'm to pray that he gets saved, but that's as far as that'll go. No, when you read that word love, it means typically what the word love means in the Bible, what that word love typically involves. You've heard me say before, if you've been here for any length of time, love like love for neighbor, love for enemy, typically involves three things. Love involves a commitment of the will. Love involves an affection of the heart. Love involves a sacrifice of the life. A commitment of the will. I'm going to do good to this person. I'm going to have their good as my object. Commitment of the will. An affection of the heart. What's that? You're not commanding feelings, are you? No, that's exactly what the Lord is commanding. I'm to have compassion, pity, a feeling of regard and love. And if I don't feel it, I need to pray for it. It's the kind of feeling Jesus had as he looked over Jerusalem. Many who would reject him, some who would put him on the cross. He was moved with pity. He was moved with love. Moved with compassion. An affection of the heart. And thirdly, a sacrifice of the life. I will lay down my life for you. I will sacrifice myself for my enemy. I'll stand between him and harm's way. A commitment of the will. An affection of the heart. A sacrifice of the life. All three are to be applied to our enemies. Jesus says we're to do good to our enemies and even to pray for our enemies. I don't know how to help us think about that word. Who, who are our enemies? I don't know who your enemies are. They might be the kind of people in verses 38 through 42 who mistreat you. Maybe that's, that's what you should kind of fill into that word enemies. Whoever it is, I want you to think about them. Jesus says you're to pray for them. You understand what's required to happen in you if you're to pray rightly for those who are your enemies. And, and don't, this is not a call for us to pray imprecations down on our enemies. It's to pray that they would be saved, that they would be forgiven, that God would be merciful, that God would be good. How do I know that? Because that's where Jesus goes. Jesus points to his Father's universal kindness toward the wicked as the thought that should condition our prayers. God makes the sun shine on the just and the unjust. He makes it rain on the wicked and the righteous. God is good even to those who are wicked. Should you not be good? And that thought of God's goodness should condition the way that you pray for your enemies. You must pray for them that God would bless them, that he would save them, that he would forgive them that he would bring them into heaven. You should pray for your enemies as Jesus prayed for many of his enemies, as Jesus prayed from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Have pity. Have compassion. Save our enemies. And then Jesus reasons in this way, verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And natural family bonds, if they're pleasant in your 
situation, church relationships, people who agree with you, think like you. What reward is there for you if you love those who love you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? A very small little by-the-way sort of application. It's one of the reasons why we don't have a nine o'clock service for younger people or a contemporary service and a later service for people who like more traditional worship. We have small groups for young singles and then young married couples and then empty nesters and all the different. Don't the tax collectors do the same? People like to hang out with each other already. Won't they going to get along? Let's, let's show something forth that's supernatural. People who wouldn't naturally be with one another are going to be put together in classes, small groups, other gatherings uh, to show forth the kind of reconciliation that comes through the gospel. Jesus says, verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? What's he saying? The true test of our love is how we love the unlovely. How we love those who most naturally would invite our ire and our disgust and our revulsion. The true test is how we love those who are our enemies. Those who mistreat us and misuse us. This will prove perhaps more than anything else, Jesus is saying, if we are truly sons and daughters of our Father who is in heaven. How will you show that you know the Lord? How will you show the mark and the imprint of His nature and His image? If you love your enemies. If you pray for those who mistreat you. If you're kind to them. He'll show forth the family resemblance. And then he says, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Sadly, a verse that Satan has used to batter the consciences of people who fear and struggle with assurance. Stick with the main point, okay? What's Jesus saying? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's not saying that all his followers must have a stainless record. The only way they'll ever be accepted is if they never sin. On those grounds, they'll be accepted into heaven. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is simply saying disciples should live by a higher standard. We talk this way all the time. If one of my children uses a word they're not supposed to use. What do I say? Yeah, son, daughter, the primas don't use that word. In this house, we don't use that word. We use our speech to build one another up. What am I doing? That's, that's the standard. Does that mean if one of my children uses their speech to tear their sibling down or at one point uses the word they shouldn't use, they're no longer my children? No. I'm acquainting them with the standard. I'm telling them this is always what we aim for. We don't want to make excuses. We don't want to apologize for ourselves. We want to... Live as we ought to live at all times. It's appropriate for us every day to wake up with the goal. We want to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. If you think about it, the call to be perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect is the same thing as saying we want to be like Christ. How do you say that we should be Christ-like without saying we should be perfect? He is perfect. How can you say, be holy as God is holy and not aspire and aim for perfection? It doesn't mean that if we fail and stumble that we'll be rejected. No, there's grace for all those who fail and stumble. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 there's something higher and better than what the scribes and Pharisees are telling you to do. There's a purer love, a deeper love, a greater love, a love that even loves enemy. And there is a goodness that overcomes evil. Pursue that goodness. Pursue that love. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be like God himself who shows his goodness to the wicked. In other places, we'll be told to be like Christ, who loved his enemies to the point of coming into the world to die on the cross in their place, that they might be saved. And maybe that's where I should close as we transition to the table. Where will we find the motivation, the strength, the power to love those who mistreat us? and misuse us, to love our enemies with the mind, with the heart, with the life. 
The only place where we will find that motivation and that inner power is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who did exactly that. Jesus is narrating in Matthew 5, 38 through 48, the very thing he would do in going to the cross. Where he would save those who mistreated him. He would save those who misused him. Those who were once the enemies of God. He would reconcile them by his blood. Not by taking up the sword, but by laying down his life. By bearing reproach. By forsaking his rights. By an act of humiliation. He would love his enemies. And he would save his enemies. Bring them with him into heaven. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is by that very act that you, who were once an enemy of God, have been saved. What greater motivation could we ask for to love our enemies than the love that's been shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us unto everlasting life, who loved us through his own blood, who loved us by becoming a sacrifice, laying down his own life, that we would be saved. It's this very thing that will be pictured in the Lord's table. We should see in these elements that we're about to partake what the Lord Jesus himself did, the lengths to which he went in the laying down of his life to secure the forgiveness of our sins. Those who mistreated him those who dishonored him, those who spitefully used him. Through these very things symbolized in these elements, we have been saved and we have been brought near. May that stir our hearts to love and serve those who mistreat us, to love those who are our enemies. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray you would seal it to our hearts. We pray that you would teach us what it means, your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray that you would teach us what it means to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. We pray, Father, the same love that was in the heart of our Lord, that is in the heart of our Lord, would be ours also. A love that extends to those who are unlovely, those who might seem to us undeserving of our love. Lord, were we deserving? When as your enemies we were lost in sin, children of wrath, sons of disobedience, dead in sin, we did not come to you, but you came to us. Father, you sent forth your Son to die in our place, that we, the enemies of God, might be reconciled through a most glorious act of love. Jesus Christ laying down his life that we might be saved. Please, Lord, may we all be possessed of such love even now for those who might be our bitterest enemies. And may we see in our experience, both in our individual relationships, in our personal evangelism, in the work of the Great Commission throughout the world, evil being overcome with good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.